Well, if you're just joining us today, we're in the middle of a series on worship. And originally, when I started putting the series together, I just wasn't sure if we were going to have enough material for several weeks. But as you get into it, you realize you've got enough material for a couple of years. Uh, but we're not going to, to spread that out that long. Um, in John chapter 4, fascinating, it's a fascinating text. We've gone back to it every week so, so far. Jesus has been engaged in a, in a woman uh, on the subject of, of worship. And at one point, the gal says to Jesus, you know, you Jews say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And us Samaritans are saying, you know, this mount, Mount Gerizim, you know, which is right. And then in verse 21, Jesus says, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. Now, just stop for a second. We know the end of the story, but... You can imagine for someone at this point, that's kind of a cryptic phrase. What do you mean by that? What are you, what are you, what, what is, what are you talking about? And we do need to ask specifically, what does Jesus mean? What's going through his head? Now, down, verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. This is, her, her insight's incredible. She says, I know this whole issue of worship. You've got to have Messiah here to figure it out. That you cannot worship. Very, very important. You cannot worship without the Messiah. That, that worship, whatever you might paint it to be, without the Messiah is inadequate. That's what this girl says. She recognizes this. And when the Messiah comes, he's going to put it all together. Now, she had no clue all of what she was saying there. Now, she'd soon find out. But she really had no clue. What we need to do this morning, and I, I tried to initially not go this route... But I think if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to go back to Old Testament worship. We're no longer worshiping in Jerusalem. What's he really talking about? We have to go back to how the Jews worshipped in the Old Testament, specifically talking about the tabernacle and the temple. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament, you no doubt have come across those passages that talk about the tabernacle and the temple. Fifty chapters that talk about the tabernacle and the temple. And if we're honest, we're not talking John Gresham type stuff, right? I mean, it's, 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 I mean, you've got to work hard, and you find yourself, you know, halfway through the, the first chapter, and you've got 49 more to go on this, you, you begin to skim a little bit, because, you know, what's a cubit anyway, and who knows, and it really doesn't matter, because that's an old relic, but if you think about 50 chapters for just a second, if you take all of the Old Testament, what it says about David, and it talks more about David than anybody else in the Old Testament, and you combine it with all of what it says about Abraham, what it says about the ta- tabernacle and temple is still more than that. The amount of copy given to tabernacle and temple, it's more than most of the books in the Old Testament, individual books. There's no other issue in the entire Bible that's mentioned more specifically than God, other than the tabernacle or temple. And so sometimes as New Testament believers, we just, well, let's just write this thing off. It's an antiquated old deal. It's not for us today. And we miss so, so much. Remember when, when Moses, right, he was talking with Pharaoh and speaking from God, he said, God said, you tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they might be comfortable, that they might not be in slavery anymore, that they might have fun. No, no, this was not God's plan. Let them go, that they might worship me. And worship was not a smokescreen God was using to try to get them out. He's going to pull the religious card and try to, no, 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 he was serious. And so you have to ask yourself, what did that worship look like? Why was it so doggone important to God? 
to get them out of Egypt? What did it look like? And are there any and are any observations? Are there any principles? Are there any parts of Old Testament worship that are for us today? I would say absolutely yes. An awful lot of it. Matter of fact, I would say here in this will we find the pattern of worship for us. And so we don't want to too quickly discount it. Background, 1445 B.C. 1445 B.C., Moses, Aaron, ten plagues, let my people go. Get these guys out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They still got this uh, Egyptian sand in their sandals. They stop at Mount Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments. We all know this. But then he gives them something else. He gives them the blueprints for the tabernacle. That's pretty significant. The blueprints for the tabernacle. And this was the, the deal with the tabernacle. All the people were nomadic. See, they hung out in the desert, right? They lived in tents. They camp up their tent. They go, and God says, I want to be with my people. So I need a tent too. And that's when you think of the tabernacle, you can think of God's tent. As he was hanging with his people. This is what he wanted to do. This is what he wanted to be about. Now this is, this is fast. all the Bibles, one big story, right? It's not a bunch of little stories. One big story. In Genesis, God is hanging out with Adam. And he did until Adam sinned. Uh, tabernacle. God is back with his people. It's looking a little bit different now, but he's back with his people. You need to know as we get into this study that the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. It's just a picture of Jesus, of what's coming. John 1.14. John 1.14. It says that Jesus, it's talking about Jesus, calls him the Word. The Word was with God, right? The word was, was God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled. It's the same word. He tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament tabernacle, that's where the Jewish people came in contact with. They experienced, they saw, they heard the glory of God. Look what's happened here. He tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the one and only came from the Father. It is, you see, pictures of Jesus, he's written all over this tabernacle. And so as we look at this thing, we're looking for, for Christ. Tabernacle, it's a tent-type structure. It's not all that big. 75 feet by 100 feet. Now, if you think of a football field, right? It's 300 feet long. This is 100 feet long. It's really not all that massive. Now, you need to know the tabernacle was a portable device. It was a tent. One day... The Israelites would be in the land and they would give their tents away and they would build houses. At that point, the tabernacle is traded in and King David has this idea and Solomon does it for him. They build God a palace and that's called the temple. But the dimensions of the rooms of the tabernacle and the, pal- and the temple, same thing. The, inf- the furniture involved in the tabernacle and temple, same, same thing. The t- temple was broadened as far as its courts and its other extra garages and rooms and that kind of stuff. But the specific part was, was the same thing. Uh, we need, need to understand that. Now, if in fact you come into the tabernacle, the very first thing you're going to come across is what's referred to as the altar of burnt offering. The altar of burnt offering. Now, this is where the Israelites would use their, do their sacrifices. Now, this is not new. No, no, stick with me for a few minutes. But if you think back, Genesis, remember? Adam and Eve, they're doing well, everything's going good, they blow it, they sin. Genesis 3.21, it says that God 
clothed Adam and Eve with skins. Remember this? They sinned. They felt ashamed because they were naked. They did something. They disobeyed God. They felt shame. It wasn't just a feeling. It was illegal standing their guilt. And so God, where did he get the skins from? He made the very first sacrifice. These guys had never seen death before. Here, God, whatever form he came to them in, kills this animal and clothes them with, with, with this. This is a principle that would be all throughout Scripture. Hebrews 9.22 lets us know, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, this, is, this is, amazes me because we find right away Adam and Eve's boy, Abel. You know what he's doing? He's offering a sacrifice. And you know, I can't find a command in there to sacrifice. He hasn't been commanded to. He's just doing it. Noah comes on the scene, and what's Noah doing? He's sacrificing. No one's commanded Noah to sacrifice. I can't find it in there, but he's, he just knows. He's doing it. Abraham comes around, and what does Abraham do? Guess, he sacrifices. And Isaac, he sacrifices. And Jacob, he sacrifices. And I'm looking for a command to do that, and I don't see it here. It's not there. And I wonder if when Adam, we got out of the garden, was kicked out of the garden, and he sat down with his boys, and he said, Guys, when your mom and I blew it, Trying to be in the presence of God. It was, it was awful. And so God had to sacrifice. This blood had to be shed to cover over for our sins. And so from the beginning, these people knew when we sin, we have to sacrifice. We, without the shedding of blood, there's, there's no forgiveness. Uh, this is interesting. In, in Exodus 10, Moses is talking to Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh says, listen, you guys can go, but I want your herds and flocks to stay back. But I'll let the rest of you guys go. Because Pharaoh knows that the herds and flocks are their clothing and their food and their sustenance. And if they don't have that, they're not going to make it. Uh, but what does Moses say? Now, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. Where did he get this? Where did God say that sacrifices are part of worship? It's, it's not in here. I can't find it. But somehow he knew. And so when you come to the, the, the tabernacle, and the very first piece of furniture they talk about is something to give sacrifices on, it it's, it's, shouldn't surprise us. But now it's official. Yeah, there are sacrifices. And, and for a 21st century Western person, it's a very sophisticated, complex sacrificial system. And we have a hard time getting our head around this one, don't we? You know, animal sacrifices. You know, just kind of, it's kind of uh, primeval and scary and superstitious. And we're just going to leave that alone. But this is where you would come. And uh, there were three different, a couple of different regulations on sacrifices. Um, first of all, uh, you need to know that sacrifices could be bulls, goats, lambs, but they had to be perfect. Perfect. When I was, uh, Teresa and I first married, we did the young married thing. You know, you're not ready for a baby yet. No. But So what we did is we went out and got a dog, right? That's what you do. Well, I was a youth pastor, and so I wasn't sure what, to, what kind of dog is best. I had kids in my house all the time, so I called up several vets, and I said, I was doing this really mythologically. I said, okay, got kids in my house all the time. What's the best dog? And they said, get a golden retriever. They were unanimous. So Teresa and I looked up. We found a breeder. We went to uh, northern Wisconsin. We walked into the barn at night. It was so cute because there were like seven or eight little puppy, eight 
week old golden retriever puppies, and they all kind of jump up and put their little paws over the railing. They're looking at us. There's nothing more beautiful than a golden retriever puppy. I'm pretty convinced that they grow up, but that's another issue. Um, well, we, we, the lady shows us the papers to the, for the dad, and he's a champion. He's an AKC champion, and he's got, this guy is a blue blood dog, man. He is, he's, he's royalty. And then she shows us the papers for the mom. AKC champion, royalty. She's royalty. We don't know what all this means, but we look and we, and we pick out a puppy. And she says, that's a good puppy. That, oh, it's an excellent puppy. But you just need to know this. That puppy has a little blemish. So she turned, I think she turned it over. I think it was on his belly. It's just a different platch of different colored skin or whatever. And she said, therefore, you can't show this dog. Well, we really weren't looking to show it anyway. But the dog has to be a perfect specimen to be AKC champion stuff material. It's just the way it has to be. Here... For your sacrifices. You couldn't bring an animal that looked like it was going to die next week anyway. You couldn't drag some roadkill off and try. No, no, no. It had to be perfect. You had to look through your herds and find the absolute best one. It had to be perfect. Also, you could, had to go here. The Jewish people had to come here, the tabernacle or the temple when it got solidified, three times a year. Unleavened bread, weeks, and tabernacles. Now, all the Jewish holidays were all, believe it or not, <laughs> they were all around the sacrificial system. They all incorporated it. But the most important one was unleavened bread. Passover slash unleavened bread. It happened together. And by the time Jesus came around, most of the Jews were not going to Jerusalem three times a year. They were just going once for unleavened bread, Passover. That was a big thing. So every Jewish person knew what happens with this. The dad would take his, check out his flocks, get his absolute best lamb, or purchase one at a cost, of course, but a very nice one. Bring it to the uh, gate at the tabernacle and place his hand on the head of the lamb, the sheep, and then he would confess his sin, his sins of his family. Uh, the priest would then take the lamb up onto the brazen altar, uh, slit its throat, kill it, sacrifice it. It was dying for their sins. It's a very uh, graphic picture. The temple, very, very bloody place, as you can imagine, all the sacrifices that are going on. Uh, the priests are ankle deep in, in blood. It was just a, a bloodbath, butcher type of a, a place. The, the altar. And then the priests, what they would do is they would move to the next station. In this courtyard, there are only two stations. Now keep in mind, God is in the house, the little house. But let me back up for just a second and say this, that if in fact you were 11 out of 12 Israelites, uh, your, your temple worship stopped. It ended at the gate. You could not get into the courtyard. You could not get into the little house for sure, which is where God resided. Even if your, your sacrifice was great and it, it atoned for your, your sin, still, you could not get into God's presence. You just couldn't do it. You just couldn't get there. You were done. Well, the priests and the Levites, they would go to the next station. Really, it's right before they got to the house of meeting. Let's read what it says about it. It's the laver. The text says, Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that, check this out, so they'll be clean? No, so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the people, they shall wash their hands and feet so they will not die. The, the labor is like a giant bird bath kind of thing. And it was two, two purposes it fulfilled. First of all, very practical. These guys maybe just are just sacrificing. Their blood is all over them. They need to wash up before they go into the, the, the tent of meeting. They don't want to be tracking blood in there. It's ceremonially unclean. They can't do that, so they need to wash up. But symbolically, very, very significant. It, it was a picture of cleansing 
from sin. As the priest would stand before the laver, he would be washing his hands, he'd be washing his feet, he'd be thinking. Prayer of Psalm 139. Lord, would you search my heart? Is there any unkind way in me? And if, in fact, as he's thinking, as he's evaluating, he's examining his heart, if God brought something to mind, goes back to this altar, he sacrifices again. Now, think, John chapter 13. Last Supper, Jesus uh, is there. And it says that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord... You're going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, check that out, not unless you're washed, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Though not every one of you is talking about Judas Iscariot. And what he's saying is, it's Peter, you've had a bath once you've gone to the altar. Once we would say, once you're, you're saved, you're, you're, you're clean. But sometimes as you go through life, you pick up stuff, you step in stuff. You, you, know, you, you pick up some filth of the world. Maybe some temptation comes and your old nature springs to the forefront again and something happens and you need to be cleansed. And I need to do it. This is, this is so huge because we come to worship, corporate worship. And we think sometimes, oh good, I was saved way back when, oh, in 1960. Oh, well, I'm saved, that's past, present, future sin. So we just kind of cavalierly walk in. And just start singing, blah, 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 Without thinking, without evaluating. This is a key, key part of worship. Before you go in the tent, before you go in the tent, before that happens, you've got to stop. Even after you've been to the altar and say, God, is there something in me? Lord, how about my, my mouth? Has it, has it honored you? My mind? Or my eyes? My, 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 my body? Have I been going in the right way? My attitude? Is there something that's not right? We miss this so much in, in evangelical Christendom. The stopping to evaluate, but you've got to know that is a key part of worship. I would say that until that happens, no worship transpires. It just doesn't. Now, Christian Missionary Alliance, we've got a logo. Maybe you've seen our logo before. Uh, you've got the cross, Jesus. We call this the fourfold gospel. Jesus is our savior. Below it's the crown. He's our coming king. To your right is the pitcher. He's our healer. And that thing to the left, that looks like a chalice, maybe the holy grail or something. No, that's a laver. Jesus is our sanctifier. It's this idea that, that after we've come to the altar, we still are going to mess up. But you need to know, I can't get better by saying, I'm just going to be better. I'm just not going to do it. And you've gone on this road, right? It doesn't work. We come to him, unless he washes us, unless he cleanses us. Well, how do we do this? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says clearly, if we, he's talking to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so, first part of worship, after you come to the altar, is come to the labor and say, oh God, I just want to examine my, my life, I want to examine my heart, some, some, some sin in me that needs to be dealt with. And tearing there a little bit. Tearing there. Well, then the priest is ready to go into the tent of meeting. 
And if you look, I think we got a little picture of the tent. Yeah. All right, he's getting ready to go in, and there's a curtain right there in the, in the uh, tabernacle. And the curtain is, is the, the whole tabernacle, it's a tent, it's made out of uh, hides of sea cows, it's, but they're all dyed, and they're dyed three different colors, blue and red and purple. Unfortunately, he doesn't tell us why he dyed them those colors, why God commanded those colors, are those his favorite colors, I don't know. But we're thinking, this is what's pretty, pretty standard out there, that blue reminds us of the heavens, that red would remind these priests in context what they've just seen, what they've just been a part of, blood. That purple's the color of royalty, right? Uh, only kings could afford purple, very expensive. Uh, who is our king who's, by whose blood we can enter into the presence of God who came down from heaven? Well, it's Jesus. Well, he goes into the, the first room. There's only two rooms in the tent of meeting. This is the holy uh, place. 15 by 30. There's three pieces of furniture. Dad's, it's not a lazy boy and a big screen and a mic. No, that's not there. So he goes to the first piece of furniture, which is a t- called the table of showbread. It's a, like a big coffee table. But what's on it are 12 loaves of bread that are placed on there every single day fresh. So you get the smell of fresh bread. But every single day, 12 loaves of bread are placed on this thing. They're uh, reflective of the 12 tribes of Israel. The priest, as he stands before this table, and he's looking at this bread on the table, he's thinking of a couple of different things. First of all, as he's at the very beginning, they're going through the desert. God is miraculously supplying manna to them. And he's thinking through the things that, that, God, you are my provider. You give us as your people all that we need. You provide for us. There's no reason for us to be anxious. There's no reason for You provide. Now, this is key for us because when we come to worship, sometimes what do we focus on? What God has given us? Often it's on what he hasn't given us, right? It doesn't matter how much health I have. I usually focus on what health I don't have. And it doesn't matter really what he's given me as far as materialistic stuff. I'm usually focused on the stuff I don't have. And the relationships that I've got, well, I'm not focusing on them. I'm focusing on the ones I don't have. Well, if you go into God's presence and you're, you're, don't, you're focusing on what you don't have, your health, and you don't have the materialistic stuff, and you don't have the relationships, they're not right. Tommy, are you grateful? Aren't you bitter? Worse, aren't you just maybe a little angry? Because God could have done something about this and he didn't. And so you come in and you sing. But in our heart, we're just focused on what we don't have. Part, key part of worship is getting realigned, is stopping at the table of showbread and saying, God, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you. I can trust you. And when you stop and when you focus on what he's given you, your heart welling up, you know what? That's worship. That's worship. And then, then the priest would go from the, the, the table of, of showbread. By the way, Jesus said in John seven thirty five, I am the bread of life. And again, the Jewish mindset, thinking temple, tabernacle, they knew what he was talking about. Then the, the priest, what he would do is he would go right across the room to right there, if I can hold it still for a second. Yeah, that's, that's the candlestick. Now, the candlestick is a very interesting piece of, of furniture. It's 67 pounds of pure gold, by the way. And it serves a couple of very significant um, purposes. One, of course, practical. There's no other light in this place other than the candlestick. There's no sun lamps or, or skylights anywhere. This is it. This is it. 
Now, not in the tabernacle, but in the temple. Imagine this for a second. In the temple, the floors are gold. The walls are gold. The ceiling's gold. And you got this gold thing. Imagine the light flickering off. This would be kind of an impressive sort of sight. And as the priest would come and stand before the candlestick, he would be mindful of a couple of things. First of all, keep in mind, they're going through the desert right now. And at night, what guided them through the desert? Cloud of fire. New Testament's going to tell us that was the incarnate Christ. That was Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And as he stood before the the candelabra, the fire, the light, uh, he said, God, you direct us. I mean, it wasn't our idea to get out of Egypt. You directed us out. You providentially worked all that out. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be worried. We don't, it's not our scheming. Okay, Lord, we'll take it from here. We're going to lead you. Follow us. No, 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 no. We want you to know, God, that we are following you. You know what that's called? That's called worship. They're worshiping God. The candlestick. Jesus said, John eight twelve. I am the light of the world. From there, the priest would go to the uh, last piece of furniture. Uh, they called the altar of incense. Now, the, the altar of incense, very not a big piece of furniture, but very significant. This is where Zechariah was standing. Remember a series of months back when Zechariah was, was praying at the altar of incense and he saw the angel and you're gonna have a, your wife's going to have a baby, Zechariah, and all that. This is where he was at. And there was a very, the recipe for the incense, it was a very special recipe. You could not, you know, your, your girls, your daughters, hippies, friends are coming over. They could not burn this, this incense. This was a very special incense, only, only in the tabernacle. And what this was, was this was a picture, the priest went there just like Zechariah was doing. This was associated with prayer. Now, it served a couple of purposes. Of course, one was practical. Can you imagine a tent in the middle of the desert filled with sweaty Levites? You know, it's going to be uh, probably nice to have some sweet-smelling incense going on. But also, uh, being symbolic of, of prayer, it was said to go up and be a sweet smell into God's nostril. Now, think about me for a minute for worship. Think of the order, because the order is very key here. These guys first stop off at the altar. They then go to the laver. This whole courtyard is nothing but, but talking about the eradication of sin. You don't come into God's presence with sin in your life. You just, you just don't. He's bigger than that. And then they were grateful. They were looking for what God had given them. And they were thanking him for his provision. They were thanking him for his direction. They were trusting in their God. And then they came to pray. What, what kind of prayers do you think at that point? I would guess their prayers are pretty acceptable to God. Sometimes we just kind of walk in and we're not thinking grateful stuff. We're not thinking His direction. We're not caring whether or not we've got any sin in our life, but we're just going to pray. How might our prayers be different at that point? You think that's worship? That's not worship. But when we evaluate our lives and we focus on what God has done for us and who He is, and then we pray, that's worship. Jesus, according to Hebrews 7.25, you know, Jesus, after he, he rose from the dead for 40 days, he showed himself to over 500 people. Then he went up to heaven. And what's he doing in heaven, according to Scripture? Hebrews 7.25, he lives today to intercede. He's praying for us today. Now, this is suddenly we hit another limitation. Because right on the other side of that altar of incense, there's a curtain. Now, the curtain is, this curtain is made out of the same color stuff 
you know, blue and, and red and purple. But this curtain has embroidered in it cherubim, angelic type of creatures. If you think Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they sinned. And what does God place at the gate of the of, of Garden of Eden? But cherubim with the flaming sword. I love this. First one to kill, sacrifice was God. First one to create a weapon was, was God. But these cherubim are standing at the altar, at the gate with a, with a flaming sword. And basically what they're saying is don't even think of coming in here. Don't even, regarding God's presence in the garden, don't even think about coming in here. And what they're doing here on the veil, they're doing the same thing. Don't even think about coming in here. This is God's presence. Nobody, nobody, nobody was allowed in there. Well, just a moment. The high priest would come in once a year, but it wasn't a good thing. And nobody was allowed to be in on a regular basis. And what's amazing to me is even if your, your, your sacrifice is acceptable, which atones for your sin, and even if you've gone through the, the labor and you've really confessed and you're clean and you've gone, you focused on God, you still are not good enough to be in the presence of God. You're just not. The holiest person just was not good enough to be in the presence of God. This, you could only get this close. Now, if you could get past the, the curtain, it's the Holy of Holies, it's called. It's perfect cube, 10 by 10 by 10. It's the only room in Scripture that's a perfect cube. Now, I'm not really sure about this one, so don't quote me on it, but I think that in all of ancient literature, there was no other structure that was a perfect cube. In the Bible, though, there's, there is one more cube mentioned, and that's in Revelation. It talks about heaven being a perfect cube. And of course, the Jews, mine would say, of course, because the perfect cube is the presence of God. So yes, of course, heaven is a perfect cube. That's the presence of God. So into this this. Holy of Holies, you've got one piece of furniture, just one. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. Ark just means box. It's not a real mystical, woo, scary word. Just box, it's a container. Noah built a, Noah built a big box, a big ark. Uh, this is an Ark of the Covenant. The important thing about the box, and it's made of a cassia wood and it's covered with gold, is what's inside it. And you've got a copy of the Ten Commandments. You've got basically the contract, the covenant between God and Israel, unconditional covenant. That's why that's so important. This, kind of thing, this, is, this is their security deposit boxes. They got that in there. Also, you've got a jar of manna in there, and you've got Aaron, the first high priest, his rod that budded. It's in there. Jesus is our high priest and the bread from heaven and the law giver, law fulfiller for us. But what's most important about this Ark of the Covenant isn't even the box. It isn't even what's inside it. It's the lid, believe it or not. The lid, and this is fascinating to me because this lid is pure gold. It's got two cherubim, hammered cherubim into it. But what it's called, you would think with the law inside the box, that this thing would be like called the judgment seat. We're going to see how well you did. But it's not called that, is it? The, the, the lid is called the mercy seat. And God starts this thing off knowing, I got my law, and you're going to need lots of mercy when it comes to my law. He knows it's right on the front end. 
Now, it's right on between these cherubim, on top of the thing. God did not hang out in the box. According to Jewish tradition, he was on the box. He was on that, on the mercy seat. And right between these cherubim, this was the origination of all the manifestation of, of, of the, the wind and the uh, fire and the smoke and the rumblings. It was, this, was the, this is where God hung out. This was God. This is where he was. And once a year, the high priest got to go in this room. Special sacrifice, special holiday with some blood. But it wasn't a fun experience. Because remember the, the labor, if you were to go into just the holy place with unconfessed sin, Scripture said you'd be killed. Can you imagine going into the very presence of God with unconfessed sin? Oh, man. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're confessing everything you've ever done and a bunch of stuff you haven't, just trying to make sure I'm clean. Lord, please, please. And the tradition says that they tied a rope. We don't know if this really happened, but they tied a rope around the high priest's ankle when he would go in, just in case he fell over dead, they could pull this guy out because no one's going to go in there after him because you don't, don't, don't go into God's presence unclean. You just don't do it. Even if the sacrifice was perfect, even if it atoned for all of his sins, even if he'd been at the labor and he saw those other things, he was focusing on God and he was, his, he was the high priest, he was the holiest, sharpest guy you could be, but even he couldn't be in the presence of God. Amazing stuff. And then Jesus talking to this woman and he says, let me let you in on a secret. Now the other Jews know. My disciples don't know this, but I want you to hear this. A day is coming when you won't worship God in Gerizim or even in Jerusalem. And she's saying, wait a minute, how do you do that? You've you got to worship God where he is, right? And he's in the Holy of Holies where he's, how do you, you know, Jesus, just trust me. A day is coming when we're not going to worship there. As we think about Old Testament worship, As we think about uh, being clean, how cavalier we are, sometimes I am with sin. We think about focusing on what he's given us, not what we don't have. We focus on his direction and power in our lives. We we pray accordingly. Uh, That is what Old Testament worship, that's New Testament worship. Would you pray with me? God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me? We, as a, 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 not just FAC, but just church, your people, we, we turn worship into so many different things. And you spent so much time telling us what it is. We just want to ignore it. Negate it. So I pray, Lord, you would stir our hearts and minds that we might worship you as we ought to worship you. That our worship of you would be that which you had for us in the beginning and now, even as we worship you now in the name of Christ. Amen. And we're going to, to sing, but if you just remain seated, that'd be fine as we, as we worship our Lord. Um, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, hang on, hang on a second. Hang, 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 sorry. Hang um, let me be just frank uh, with this, and I'm not sure how else to, to say this, but really... Um, if, in fact, you're in, involved in an uh, extramarital affair, uh, I, mean, that's, I mean, don't sing. Let's not make this a hypocritical kind of thing. Uh, let me just run that actually a little bit, too, because if you're involved in any kind of sexual sin, you and your boyfriend or girlfriend, you just, it's just a little bit out of con- control. Just, just don't now, because you ought, uh, ought not to.
And then being faithful to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, when it came to worship, uh, Jesus said that, uh, you've heard that it said don't commit adultery. That's right. But I'm telling you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So as we worship, if in fact you're given to lust, don't, just don't sing. Don't sing. Thinking through that text, Jesus also says that uh, if you've committed murder, so murderers shouldn't, of course, but he said, um, but I tell you, if you hate somebody, then you've committed murder in your heart. Now, we might say, well, I've never hated anybody. I just don't like a few people. But Jesus gives us a test. He says that if you've called somebody names, you don't have to call them to their face. You can call them behind their back. You can call them in your mind. And he gives us two different names. One that insults their uh, intellect, who they are. The person is an idiot. They're clueless. They don't, have, they don't know what they're doing. Have you ever said that about anybody? The other name, Jesus would say, would be one that insults who they are spiritually, challenges their motivation. Have you ever done that? Jesus says, if you have, you hate. You're a murderer. So don't murder us not. Let me, tell what, let me write some of this stuff down. Because uh, there's a couple more things. Of course, there's, what do we say, immorality. And that's going to cover all sex, sin, okay? Let's do that. Oh, lust as well. Um, hate. And then, of course, when you're calling, I'll just call this calling names, but you know, that's also um, passing judgment on somebody. And Jesus says, judge not. This is what he's referring to. The uh, Bible would also call this uh, slander or backbiting. Believe it or not, uh, God had some words for those in the uh, desert when they were complaining. Complaining is a sin, of course. Um, we can also incorporate on this, I think, greed, right? Uh, kids, let me throw this at you. Because the Apostle Paul says, I mean, he lists disobedience to parents with some very tough sins. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, disobedience resulted in, it was a capital crime. You, 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 were, you were killed for that one. Um, how about this? Let me put this down. Pride. And goes, you know, pride, we say, well, you know, pride's a hard one to see in the mirror, isn't it? Um, but pride often is, say, you know, this other person may be sharper. Oh yeah, they might be more gifted, but at least I'm, you know, more humble. You know, I, I understand the score. I'm authentic and real. That's, 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 that's pride. That's pride. Uh, can I put this one down, y'all? Gluttony? How about uh, lack of control? Um, how about rage? Anger out of control? That's a sin. I don't even put down anger. Now, anger isn't always a sin. There is a righteous anger, but I'm guessing that's usually not your my forte. When we get angry, usually it's because we've been slighted. We don't get what we want. That's, that's, that's where that comes from. Um, well, that's, but that's the materialism thing, I suppose. Whenever we're deciding that we're going to go after money more than anything else. And I don't know, we could run out of board space. Now, I'm guessing if we had enough time, that it would be, we could fill this thing multiple times with different sins, right? 
And we haven't even started sins of omission. You know, but James says, if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin. So if I know I should pray, but I just blow it off, that's sin. If I know I should give to help somebody, but I don't do it because I don't want to give away my money, that's sin. If I know I should confront somebody, but I don't do it, that's sin. If I know I should be kind, it's sin if I don't do it. And plus, you know, let me just picture, let's just say you die one day, you go to heaven, and you got one of these things up in heaven. I think all of our, our works are accounted for. Biblically, I think we can say that. And not just lust is on your board, but every single time you've ever lusted. Date, time, place. It's on there. Not just, we didn't put it on here, lying, telling the half-truths. Not just lying in general, but every single time you've ever kind of colored the truth a little bit. Every single time you were ever prideful, just a little bit. Every single time you were lazy or gluttonous or out of control. Every single time, it's on there. Every single time you didn't do good, but you know you're supposed to. It's dated, it's on there. How many boards do you have? And, and then, you know, the goofy thing is you're going to die and get to, get to the gate and he's, he's going to say, hey, what, what do you want here? And you're going to say, well, I want into heaven. I want into the cube. I want to God's presence. He's going to say, well, why? He said, well, because, because I want to worship God, really. He's going to look at all your stuff and say, you know, maybe you don't understand about the tabernacle, the, the temple. And we put a lot of stuff in there. I'm surprised you didn't get it. But, but let me tell you, nobody gets to the cube. Nobody gets there. Even if your sacrifice is perfect, even if you only got one thing on your board, it still is too many things on your board to get into the cube, to the presence of God. Sorry. That's not a good scenario. Now let's put a couple of dots together here. John one twenty nine. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a strange title. And the Jewish people all knew what you did with lambs and they knew the Passover. It was, all, it was the Lamb of God takes away the sins. The only way you take away sins is death. And then, when Jesus came to die, it was Passover. And the time he died was the exact time the Passover lambs are being killed. And then, get this, Matthew, the text. Strange things happen. It says, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, where no one could go, was suddenly, if you were a Levite in the temple in the holy place, suddenly you're staring into the, the presence of God. And the symbolism's real clear. From this point on, Levite, you've got full access into the presence of God. From this point on, all people, you've got full access into the presence of God. So when we take our sin to the foot of the cross and we give it to Jesus, we recognize that his sacrifice covers all of it. Even stuff we can't remember anymore covers all of it. The blood and bulls and goats, according to Hebrews, is not enough. But Jesus' sacrifice cleans it all. Let me ask you, 
right now if you were to die, stand at the gate, your boards came out, however many you'd have, what would be on it? We worship. Not because we had a good week, not because I'm better than you are, you're better than I am. Worship, not because I don't have a lot of stuff because of my goodness on my board. We worship because Jesus paid for it all. His sacrifice blows away the blood bulls and goats. This is why I think he's halfway smiling with this woman. The day's coming when we're shutting the door in Jerusalem on the temple. This is amazing. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. If you trust him, you are the new temple. He comes in you. You have full access to the presence of God. All that's what he wanted to be with his people. What an amazing, amazing thing. If in fact, you would say, you know what, right now where I'm at, I know I'd be standing before him, I would have lots of stuff on my board. The gospel says this, that right now, today, can be wiped clean. Not because you're good, not because you're going to try harder, but because Jesus died for it. And so you come before him and you say, Lord, thank you for dying for me. I confess you as my Lord. In other words, you're in control. Here's my whole life. I'm, you're leading. You're leading. Would you forgive me of my sin? At that point, Scripture says, we're wiped clean. He comes within us. We have full presence of him. Amazing. Amazing. It's the gospel. I want to give you an opportunity if you've never surrendered your life to Christ to surrender your life to him now where you're, you're sitting recognize you got a lot of stuff on your board and he died for all of it and if you surrender your life to him and give that to him it's gone it's gone 